Friday, February 8, 2019. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. Next week, Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Vietnam Veterans of America's Facebook page, VA and VVA will collaborate on a Facebook Live event on VA programs to end homelessness. That's Vietnam Veterans of America's Facebook page, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a Facebook Live event. Uh, so if you go to that page and you're a little, if you go to that page and you're a little early, uh, just refresh at 2 p.m. You should see the live video go. Uh, if you want more information to register for the event, go to explore.va.gov/events. This week's interview is with Joel Shaveri. Joel Shaveri. He's a Marine Corps veteran and he is a counselor at the Arlington, Texas VA Vet Center. Vet centers are one of VA's most crucial and valuable asset in providing counseling to veterans and their family members. Joel's going to talk to us about his time in the military, his transition out, how he got into counseling, and his experience at vet centers, and what everybody needs to know about them in order to take advantage of this resource themselves or to be able to recommend it to somebody else. Enjoy. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. All right. Uh, Joel Shaveri. Um, Marine, Marine Corps Reserve, 16 years. Uh, you were you were originally combat camera, combat correspondent. Combat, combat correspondent. I apologize for the differences that there may be. You gotta get it right. And if I've offended yeah. either either party <laughs> involved. Well, well, nowadays they're trying to consolidate all this, but yeah, back then you would have offended a lot of people for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I was an air winger, all right? Okay. Don't yeah. expect me to know anything outside the air wing. And even <laughs> yeah. there, I didn't quite know too much about it. That's a be- that was the, one of the beautiful parts about the air wing, right? Mm-hmm. Ground side seemed to know everything about every other MOS, right? Like, on the, like I feel like the ground side Marines seemed to know each MOS, the number, the like what they did. They knew someone there. And the air wing, uh, unless you were, like, with a squadron specifically... Um, if if just felt like you, you, we were just a little more ignorant to the to the to our side of of the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. so uh, so I, I apologize for for uh, mixing up correspondent and camera. But you did you did run around with the for camera, didn't you? For all intents and purposes, it's the same thing, right? Gotcha. So we train at the same place. We do a lot of the same types of things. Yeah. And like I said, they're even consolidating a lot of that kind of stuff now in the Marine Corps to kind of make it one track. Right. But uh, really, the the difference at that time was you had individuals who were trained more to take pictures, individuals who were trained more to write the stories. So the correspondents wrote a lot of stories, and I did that too. I wrote a lot of stories, but I also write 
had, had a camera, took a lot of pictures too. Yeah. So, uh, so 16 years ago, I imagine you still went through Dinfos Defense That's Information it. School. Yeah. 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 Fort Meade, Maryland. Yes. Dinfos Killer. That's, That's what they call it. Yeah. <laughs> I went. I did. Uh, I did a one month electronic journalism course uh, at Dinfos about a year and a half ago. Oh wow. Okay. And let me tell you, it was so interesting being a prior marine Mm. um who was well beyond my not well beyond but far enough along where i didn't resonate with being in the marine corps anymore like that was a while ago i consider Mm it and and having all of those memories sort of come back to me as i watch marines and training oh wow you know and and i think i think that was that's part of the Marine Corps that I kind of forget about as far as like memory wise, like what the experience was like. Like I remember like being, you know, in the fleet and, you know, in as an MSG and stuff like that. And a little bit of boot camp, of course, because that really sticks with you. But the the day to day of MOS school and stuff mm-hmm. like that sort of escaped me. And all of those memories sort of started coming back. So I'm watching all of these PFCs, memories, you know, right? run around. <laughs> Yeah, having to wake up at just the, just zero the, dark thirty. To, yeah. Right, yeah, the silly time control. You know, like I remember, like they weren't allowed to go off base. You know, like so. And I was like, oh, that's right. Like yeah. you're practically a hostage voluntarily. <laughs> yeah, you volunteered to be a hostage. Because <laughs> well, uh, you're not, especially at that level, you're not in the Marine Corps yet. Right? Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so 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 uh, that's my experience at Dinfos. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Tell, so the one thing that all veterans have in common, where we start a lot of these these interviews, okay. is the decision to join the military. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that, that's that's something that no matter what branch we served in, no matter what our experiences were in, it can all it all goes back to day one when it started. Tell us about your day one. Well, I joined. I signed my paperwork maybe a few months before nine eleven. Okay, before that happened. Okay. So, a few months. Or a few months before nine eleven. Okay. And I had you, when you sign up in the Marine Corps at, at the very beginning, uh, I was a poolie, right? You're kind of in this limbo before you actually join. And I was going to college, so I was in this transition poolie period for I had planned a year. And then 9/11 happens, and if anything, it probably solidified my decision to, to join the Marine Corps. You know, I I joined for lots of reasons. You know, I had some uh, my grandparents served in the military. I, uh, I had friends that had served in the military. I wanted to do something bigger and better, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been the, to, to the movies and you remember seeing there's a commercial where, uh, recruiting commercials where a Marine fights a giant um, a flaming dragon yes, yes. with a sword. What Marine, what Marine does not... <laughs> Right. Of, of, yeah. of, I think any Marine who's maybe, um, maybe I would say, uh, I think if you're like 28 and older, maybe yeah, I think you remember if, this one. Yeah, yeah, if you're in your mid 20s or younger, you probably you may not remember. Yeah. You might have been too young, but yeah, I think I remember even seeing that when I was too young to even know what the Marines were. Yeah, was, and I said, right? okay, yeah. that's it, done. I want to fight a flaming dragon <laughs> with a sword. Where do I sign? Yeah. No, but but really, I, I just wanted to Marine Corps marketing serve man. in some sort of way. Like I've always had a call, I feel a call to serve. And I mean, that's kind of where it ends me here at the VA, but I've always kind of had that part of me. And so I said, how can I do it the best I possibly can? And like I said, you know, uh, 9-11 then happened and really solidified that. It's like, okay, this is happening. Uh, I'm glad I signed up. Let's do this. 
and then just a few months later, ship off to boot camp. So yeah, yeah. did you uh, so did you go into it knowing you were being combat correspondent? Is that that contract that you you arranged? Were you one of the crazy ones that went open contract and no, got I, lucky? I picked that job. <laughs> okay, I picked that job. It sounded interesting. I did a little bit of journalism in high school. Okay, so it was kind of right in my lane. So sure, yeah. Tell me, I mean, so how much? How long after nine eleven did you ship off the boot camp? Like the, how how long I, how long did you have for that to sort of be in your brain before you went off to, to actually be a part of the military? Six or seven months. Okay. So six or seven months after that is when I yellow footprint, footprints right, and, and shipped off to boot camp. What, what, do you think, what do you think was the most drastic difference in the way you perceived your upcoming career between September 10, 2001 and September 12, 2001. So before I joined, the idea of joining the military was, of course, service, but then you're thinking, a lot of people joined at that time, thinking about benefits. You know, you're like, okay, yeah. I'm going to use this to go back to school and use the GI Bill. I'm going to use this to accelerate my career in different ways. People weren't thinking about war at that time. So after 9-11, and especially when you start hearing about people, you know, the potential of us deploying, you don't know where or when, but you're hearing about this kind of thing, it now shifts to, okay, now we're joining during wartime, potentially wartime, and it's not just about education benefits or GI Bill or any of that kind of stuff. It's about real service during a wartime period. So I had a lot of people who were saying, do you still want to go? I'm like, of course, absolutely, I still want to go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I want to go more now, right? Yeah. But it was scary. It was scary, especially not really knowing at that time exactly where you would go, how you would go there. I mean, there's a lot of uh, confusion and questioning, but I mean, I'm glad I did it, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Tell me, about a, tell me about a close friend or a great leader you had while you were in the military. You can, t you can choose either one, but tell me about that person. It's so hard to do. There's so many people. Uh, when you... When you first asked that question, the first person I think of was my my first staff sergeant when I got to my first reserve duty station before I deployed or anything. And he later became a gunner sergeant, and uh, uh, he later became the sergeant major, and and uh, uh, he moved on, and and I moved different directions, but we've always kind of stayed close, and the. Really early, I mean, I can't stress enough the early lessons. So here I am, I'm a PFC, uh, then Lance Corporal, and he's a staff sergeant. Just right there, right when I landed on my first duty station, the interactions I had with this man pretty much decided the rest of what my career would look like. And I hear these stories a lot, talking with veterans. It is so true that the early leaders you have really do influence the way you think about things. And, you know, here's a guy who, you know, he was the individual who, uh, Rusty Baker, who I'm thinking of, he's the individual who called me and he said, hey, Joel, are you sitting down? Because you're going to Iraq, right? And he really kind of made me feel secure and safe through all these different transitions as I deployed and came back and things like that. Uh, another person I'm thinking of, when you say, who's someone you think about? When I was in Iraq, there was someone who I was bunked with. We were in the same can, and he was a few years older than me. He was also a combat correspondent, and that was Paul Light. And Paul, because he had a couple of years past me, he was really able to help me in a lot of ways while I was deployed in Iraq. 
to where I didn't feel as alone. He was a good friend and uh, a, a mentor. We were the same rank, but he just kind of filled a little bit of a mentor sure. role in my life because when you're deployed like that, it's scary. You know, you, you don't say that it's scary. Everyone's all tough, but it's scary. It's frightening to be there. You're, there's you're so, it's so many unknowns about deployment. When, when's the next mortar going to land on my head type of thing? Yeah. And so to have a, a positive influence like that with Paul was good. And he's a guy who I also stayed friends with for years. We just hang out last weekend, you know, so. Sure. Um, those are the two people I think of. Yeah. So, um, Normally, this is where I ask people, uh, tell me about your transition out, uh, or prompts your transition out, but you have remained in the reserves uh, 16 years. What's what's kept you around? Well, they haven't gotten rid of me yet. They <laughs> haven't figured it out and kicked me out. No, I, I, I have always said, well, I joined in the Marine Corps Reserve right. initially. When I signed the paper, I joined the Reserve. Six-year contract, and then two years in is when I get deployed to Iraq. I was in Iraq for from 2004 to 2005. And when I got back, you go back to the normal reserve drilling status. And then at the end of that six-year period is kind of the, the point to where you would say, okay, am I, where am I going to go? And at that point, I, I really was. I, I had anticipated to, to, to move on, but then opportunities to continue serving. Because usually when your six-year contract is up in the reserve, depending upon the unit, they say bye yeah. because they don't have space for you. But an opportunity has opened up for me to serve with a unit called Marine for Life. And then later on, with um, uh, the wounded war- which is part of the Wounded Warrior Project. So these opportunities open up and the door kind of opened. And I said, well, I, yeah, I would love to stick around and just walk through that door. And I've done that every time. So each time where my contract would kind of be at an ending point, a door opened for me to continue to serve in a different capacity, and I did it. Uh, I've Since then, I've gotten married, and I have a couple kids, or three kids now, and I've always told my wife, I said, look, you know, family is the most important thing. If the Marine Corps ever gets between us and the family, then, you know, I'll choose the family. But uh, it never really has, you know, the Marine, and then my the times that it's gotten close to, my wife's been so supportive that there was no reason for me to leave. Uh, the VA is great because the VA gives me that time too. The VA has such like a good respect for its veteran employee population that we have this additional time that we can take to serve and, and nobody asks any questions. Yeah. So when I have the trail weekends or those annual trainings or any other types of things I have to do, the VA allows me to do it. So I stick around because I can, because I love it. I love the Marine Corps. I'm, I'm going to stay as long as I possibly can. Yeah, good. Uh, tell us how do, how do you how did you get involved with the VA then? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, something we see a lot from the uh, the veteran community is hire more veterans, right? Like we want we want we want to see more veterans at VA, but I I don't think that the I don't think I still think that they don't understand how many veterans really are already at VA. How many people are either uh, prior service members, family members, or, uh, you know, an immediate family member of, um, of, of a veteran, right? And how, how, how much of the veteran community already exists here at VA, um, how much of that played into your desire to, to come to VA and serve other veterans? Well, you're right that a lot of people don't realize that. And even here at the vet center, readjustment counseling service, vet centers, uh, we hire a lot of veterans 
to be our our counselors. Yeah. I mean, not exclusively, but the last numbers I heard is there's around 75% of all employees at vet centers are veterans. And then you got somewhere around half of them are Vietnam veterans. And then about a third of them are Iraq Afghanistan veterans. Yeah. Okay, so when you walk into a vet center, you're just you're right. There's a lot of veterans here, and even the non-veterans, spouse of a veteran, family member, somehow connected to the military service. I you're right. I didn't know that when yeah. I got back. Yeah, you know, I didn't think about the VA veterans doing that kind of um, uh, serving in that capacity. It didn't really occur to me. Matter of fact, when I got back from Iraq, I went back to my old job, which was working at Starbucks. The barista, make some coffee. You know, that's what I did. Yeah. And really, it was just through uh, almost pure accident that I kind of stumbled upon someone else who worked at the VA and said, hey, like you kind of said, the VA is always recruiting to hire veterans. And so I started to explore that and landed upon this. Uh, my initial job at the VA was more of a outreach, community service, public relations type of job, which what I did in the Marine Corps with public affairs, public relations. So I said, okay, I could do that. You know, initially I had thought that I would go to school and, and continue in public affairs. So I said, this would be great. I'll go to the VA and, and work almost in the same type of job I did in the Marine Corps. And that job was a, sure, it was a public relations person, but it was a public relations person for the vet centers. Yeah. So when I first got hired, it was for the vet center doing outreach and PR and things like that to bring veterans in and, and let them know about that vet center benefit. Yeah. How uh, how long have you been with vet centers now? How, how long has... So I was hired in December 2005. December 2005. Yeah, so... So, I mean, so that's coming up on thirteen years here, almost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so if I'm if I'm catching this timeline collect uh, timeline correctly, you got back from Iraq in March. So I was back from Iraq, you know, about ten, uh, nine or ten months before I landed the VA job. Okay. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of overlap there, a lot of uh, synergy almost, if you will, with. Uh, with your service and uh, your continued service to veterans here at VA. Yeah, I almost didn't skip a beat. I, I, I'm, I, I don't know where I would be if I hadn't gotten recruited the way I was and, and kind of found. Because I, like I said, I was looking into journalism, public affairs, uh, but I don't think that I would have been, knowing myself, I wouldn't have been satisfied yeah. doing that. I, I loved it in the Marine Corps. I, I still love it, but... I found so much more satisfaction doing what I do now. Yeah. Right. Not just because I'm doing work as a social worker, but because I'm doing it for veterans in the VA. Yeah. So it's just twice as rewarding. Yeah. So how does um, tell tell me about your first year or two as a social worker? Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of your initial challenges um, in in dealing with the emotional toll that I know that a lot of this work can, can bring? If, if that's something that you actually experience, I may be, oh, yeah. be too presumptuous there, but um, as, as someone who addresses these things not professionally, I know it's emotionally, emotionally, emotionally taxing. I can only imagine that if you're hired to do it and it's a part of your daily life, that um, I, I imagine it had to have been um, uh, a learning curve, at least, in, in the beginning of, of how to navigate that and take care of yourself at the same time. Well, that's the thing is the VA, it's great that we're hiring veterans. We want to hire more veterans. 
And then it's great that we're hiring veterans to be therapists, counselors also. But the unintended consequence of that is that those veterans may have themselves been through traumatic experiences. Sure. And we don't know what they've done to take care of themselves. And so we have to be aware of that. People are starting – look, people are paying attention to this in the VA. Uh, people are paying attention to this in the research. I just read some research recently that was exploring this shared trauma, similar tra- traumas. I was in combat. I had traumatic experiences in combat. And now here I am providing therapy to veterans who had the same experiences. Am I okay? Am I well enough to be able to treat them? And how much is me seeing those individuals contributing to my own personal burnout? Burnout is something that all social workers, all therapists really have to be aware aware of often. And you add on to it that you're a veteran who might have had trauma experiences that's the same as your clients yeah so it it can be a little complicated so i'm glad that people are paying attention to this that research is being done to make sure that we can avoid burnout that we can take care of them because it's true i you asked about my first time um uh first year or two in the va as a social worker one of my first clients he doesn't know this (laughs) one of my first clients uh, was in the same battle that I was. No kidding. In Fallujah. And he's telling me about streets he was da- going down, about uh, firefights he was in. And I remember the names of those streets, those particular days and firefights he was talking about. And I never told him that I did that because, well, it's not about me. It's about him. But th- my initial reaction was w- to want to share the experience. Hey, look, you know, let me tell you about what I did. But uh, w- what I've learned is that that our, the camaraderie that you can build with a veteran client by them knowing that you're also a veteran, and that only takes you so far. Yeah. It, the fact that I'm a veteran and we have other veterans working here, that helps a lot of our clients get in the door the first time. Okay, to, to walk in knowing that, okay, here's someone who understands, who gets it, but that only gets them in the door. If you actually really want to help them and get them past and help them decrease their symptoms and uh, improve their lives and uh, decrease the impact that PTSD have on their lives, it takes good clinical skills. Uh, simply being a veteran isn't going to make uh, that veteran somehow magically you know, be cured of PTSD. Yeah. It gets them in the door, but really it's building rapport, building relationship, having good clinical skills that gets them past that. And so that was my first few years as a social worker was, was recognizing the, the limits of that, that simply being a veteran isn't going to solve everything that just because I'm a veteran, I'm not gonna be able to care for every single person, uh, that I really need to build those, those clinical skills. And that was, I mean, proving grounds right there because you're right. Uh, it, it, it can hurt you. Yeah. you the, the therapist can be impacted by hearing these stories and by, uh, by, uh, because, you know, we, we care so much. I mean, I care so much about my clients and, and I, and hear these stories. I mean, I, I'm sometimes I'm, you know, I, I can be sad, right. Yeah. But, but I think it's important. And what I learned back then, I had good mentors at that time to, to help me and good supervision and consultation and all the kind of things that the VA is able to provide was that 
we, we need to recognize how much it's hurting us sometimes, be able to bring that up, talk about that with somebody, and work through that ourselves. Because, you know, we're not just veterans, human beings, and, and we're going to be affected. Uh, so that was a really important thing for me to learn really on. And I think it's really important for all veterans who work in the VA to know, too, that it's okay if you're impacted by these kind of things. It's okay to ask for help. And that makes you a better therapist and a better counselor if you know how to ask for help and know how to get uh, you know, assistance yourself as you're going through this process. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a handful of questions that I don't know if they follow any sort of like line of, or stream of thought or anything. So, so forgive me as these may seem as like one-offs or kind of random, but um, let's start with, so one thing I've always been curious of is, um, you know, I guess for, how often do you see, what's the average frequency that you're seeing a client? Every vet center works a little bit differently. Yeah. The, the workload, the amount of people who are coming in every day. We have 300 locations nationwide. Some are located right next to military installations. Some are located a little bit more buried into uh, rural areas of the community. So the frequency of visits are different. But for myself and this vet center, you, you know, we see – I today, for example, I saw – uh, I had a couple walk-ins, people who just randomly walk in. If someone just walks in, for example, I'll see them that day. Yeah. Okay. And I'll actually meet and spend some time talking with them. I won't just see them for five or ten minutes. You know, we'll, we'll spend time talking. But I'd say maybe if I'm looking at just individual clients, six or seven clients a day would be a maximum because I meet with folks for 45 minutes to an hour. And so, you know, that's a, a full day right there. But then we also have groups. Sure. You know, so and groups can be eight to twelve people in a group, so you might have one, maybe two groups in a day. So in that kind of ca- in that case, you might be seeing twenty, thirty people in one particular day, potentially. Sure. Right. And then you fan that out to a week, and so now you're talking about seeing a couple hundred people a week, right? So it really depends, though, on each counselor, how many groups they might have, how many people they see, but uh, we're always paying attention to workload. You don't want to overrun somebody caseload is one of the biggest contributors to burnout yeah and if you're seeing too many people you can get burned out so you got to even that out between the rest of the staff but but for, for any for any one veteran mm-hmm. how how often might you, might you be seeing them and you can ballpark this oh, okay. yeah well the the general rhythm of this and i'll say a good starting point with almost any client that comes in is we usually start around once a week we're yeah. going to see that veteran once a week depending upon severities if 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 they're in crisis who two or three times a week, if that's what it takes. And then if, as people start to, as uh, symptoms start to decrease over time, then we might change that to every two weeks. You know, when I sit down with a veteran, one of the first things we talk about, and I learned that you learn this in school, man, you learn this in school. One of the first things you talk about is what's our last visit. Interesting. What's the last visit going to look like? Because if you have to come here for the rest of your life, I'm not doing my job. Right. My job is to get you to a point where you don't have to come here anymore. That's super interesting. It's so counterintuitive. Right. Yeah. You to know, how they, to how we approach uh, these types of things. Yeah. Yes. So you know they call it termination. It's this horrible word, but the, <laughs> the, the idea is you, when, when, when is when are we the branding on that could be better. Right. They can yeah. brand that. When are we going to terminate sessions? When the end going to look like? And and we set quantifiable goals. Okay. We we want to get to if it was five night wires a week, we want to get to four. That's an example, right? A quantifiable goal. We want to move you to a direction where you don't have to come here. We don't want you to be dependent. 
okay? Because we want to breed independence. Right? Yeah. And so uh, we, I talk about that with everybody, and usually we'll have treatment plans and goals that are set up in such a way that allow us to review that and say, okay, well, after so many weeks or so many months, let's go back. Have we met those goals? Are we at a point now uh, where, to where you can move on? And even moving on, look, we'll never – say you can't come back to the vet center but if i get to an ending point with a lot of veterans what we'll do is say okay well let's uh let's schedule an appointment maybe a you know a quarter in the next quarter or something like that i'll schedule an appointment three or four months out or and of course i'll have veterans that'll call after a couple years and just want to check in that's fine too or maybe we pivot to a different kind of treatment therapy right uh with some of the other things we do with the art guitar, tai chi that we do, all these other non-traditional therapies, we can move them into a, 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 you know, a different type of treatment that might change the way that they're interacting with the vet center. You know, you, once you're a client with the vet center, you'll always be a client with the vet center. But at the same time, I don't want you to have to come here for the rest of your life. Yeah. Right? yeah. So. So, how, so, when you, so when you get to that, that uh, I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't know what the average amount of time is from first visit to last visit, but whatever that time period is, as you're approaching, um, as you're sort of in that home stretch of, of termination or of discontinuing therapy with that, uh, how nervous do, you, do your clients get that that, that, um, that routine visit is about to be uh, mm-hmm. let go of? If you've done your job right, they shouldn't be nervous because okay. they know it's coming. Sure. Right? So the idea is that that at the same time you're decreasing the symptoms, you're increasing their personal confidence and their ability to go without it. I think that a lot of veterans are pretty confident knowing that the vet center will always be here for them, right? So even though that they know that, okay, so we've scheduled this particular date to be your last date, that doesn't mean our relationship has ended. You can always come back in the future. So they kind of have that as this sort of safety net. But if you've done it right, there shouldn't be a whole lot of jitters or nervousness or anxiety about it. The idea is is that you've accomplished some great things, and now it's time for you to move on. I mean, that yeah. should be the goal. So what do you, so um, what do you? What's the right question here? If you're seeing them once a week, um, what sort of practices do you teach them? What sort of um, what sort of advice do you provide on what they should do between uh, between sessions with you? Like, like if you're if you're experiencing this, I want you to try this. Like, what sort of self care practices do you help them adopt? Um, not only with that independence in mind, but just sim- even simply between sessions. That way, they can um, address things even when they're not in the room with yeah. you. Well, what we teach and different types of skills that are passed, you know, that are provided are largely dependent upon the different types of treatment that's that uh, modalities that's used in counseling. Okay, so here at the vet center, uh, all of our, at least in our location, all of, all of our providers are trained in one of the three different types of uh, main evidence-based therapy that the VA recognizes, and that's cognitive processing therapy, CBT, uh, prolonged exposure, PE, or eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, EMDR. Okay, so we have people trained in all of these. And each one is going to approach 
that kind of idea differently. What do you, uh, will you have homework? What does that homework look like? Are you going to be building different types of coping skills, breathing skills, uh, journal writing, um, uh, uh, or you know maybe reading a book, or we, we send them with educational materials. A lot of people have this idea of therapy, of sitting on this little couch, you know, and laying back in the. Freudian-looking therapist is sitting behind you with some glasses, and tell tell me how that makes you feel. Yeah, uh, you know, you're, you're, it's absolutely even people who have been in therapy. That's still the vision that we have vision on therapy. That yeah, see, right? And really, it's more of a, a relationship. If you can build a strong relationship, okay. And I tell this, I you know, I say this to both the veteran. It's important you build a strong relationship with your counselor and to the counselor. It's important you build a strong relationship with the veteran. You need to have a good rapport and a relationship because without that, no amount of homework, no amount of uh, breathing skills or anything you send them is going to change anything because they won't do the homework. They won't practice the skills, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, the, the rapport that you have, the relationship you build, it's got is to be the first thing that happens. And you do that by l- really just listening. Yeah. You know, a lot of veterans don't like to repeat their story over and over and over and over and over again. I hear you. <laughs> I, I hear you. I just tell the story over and over again, too. But sometimes, you know, the therapist is, is engaging with you to ask these kind of questions because we, you know, we really, really care, want to listen, want to hear, want to hear what's going on. And the better I can listen to a veteran and really hear what they say, sometimes between the lines, um, the more I can demonstrate to them that I how much I care and build that rapport and build that relationship, uh, so that we can move forward with treatment. Sure. Uh, something we talked about a little bit uh, before we hit record that um, that I definitely want to get into because this is a question that I get. This is a concern that I've had as a veteran myself. Um, I found out about vet centers like, oh my, that's so awesome. I could use some counseling. Never mind. I don't qualify. Um, mm. Right. I so so my. Um, is my, my first exposure to vet centers was learning that I couldn't take advantage of them. Uh-huh. Um, and so I want to make, uh, I, I know that I'm not alone in that. Um, and, and so, uh, let's first talk about the three things, uh, the three areas that vet centers do address and, in, and, in, in, um, you know, what, uh, I don't know what you call it, qualifiers. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but, sure. um, what are the, th- what are the three types of veterans or three types of circumstances in which, uh, you can, you, uh, can take a veteran in as, as a client? Okay. So the first one is where we, where the vet center started from when, and that's the combat veteran. Okay? Sure. So we say combat veteran, but really it's war zone veteran. It's any veteran that served, uh, uh deployed to a conflict zone that the United States was engaged in. As a matter of fact, we've even expanded that area a little bit for folks who maybe were drone operators. So maybe they didn't mm. deploy, but they were still engaged in combat and that kind of, or folks who were medical support personnel who were seeing yeah. the outcomes of combat. So even the deployment aspect of it, we want to tell people. Look, if you're engaged in war in some capacity, we can, you know, mortuary affairs, you know, all these different kinds of ways that, that you could have been engaged in, even though you maybe didn't get the ribbon or the medal. Sure. And we can see you because we're going to find a way to see you. Okay, so that's that's the beginning. You know, the vet centers started in 1979. Uh, first one was out in California. And I know the vet centers, when they first started, some had 
washing machines and you know pool tables like a vfw just without the beer yeah uh, but in very very peer support veteran helping veteran right it was a vietnam veteran center so it started and then the va adopted that program and you know the rest is history here you know we've expanded to 300 locations nationwide now and uh also changed the the requirement of the counselors no longer just peer it's you know professionalized that that, that role to where you have to have a clinical license to provide the therapy and and then expanded who we can see from just Vietnam and then keep rolling back to all wars and all current conflicts and keep pushing out. Uh, so uh, the other area of eligibility we also serve are military sexual trauma victims. So that's any member of the military who experienced any sort of sexual violence, uh, regardless of your gender or regardless of having deployed. So if you experience sexual violence, you can come to a vet center. And we do that for lots of reasons, but one is that you know, vet centers are storefronts. You know, we're yeah. operate we operate outside the hospitals and clinics, and a lot of times, people who may have experienced sexual violence in the past may not think to go to the hospital or the, sure. the clinic, and so they can come to a vet center and receive the care and therapy that they need without having to go to big VA. And then finally, we see bereavement, uh, grief and bereavement. Uh, therapy for the family members who lost a loved one and that's that's any member of the military that died while on active duty whether it was deployed or not um, if they died while on active duty we can see the family member for grief and bereavement therapy and the reason we do that is because a lot of those family members oftentimes if they were living on base and the service member died they may they may move out of base go back home to wherever they lived before and, and feel isolated, not really connected to the bigger military support system that they had before. Where do I go if I need to talk to somebody? Well, there's probably a vet center near you. Yeah. So they can come to the vet center uh, and receive care there. So, um, you know, you and I met yesterday at the event uh, at, at Gillies, the, the hiring Red, White, and You event, that the hiring event that was going on. Um, right. VA was there in support of that. There was a mobile vet center that was parked out front. Um, if 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 I had gone to you there as a as a veteran, like oh, and and you know, like hey, what what is this thing? I'm like oh, we provide counseling for veterans, and I'm like oh, well, I have to be honest, I've, I've, I suffer from depression, and I've I've considered suicide before, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I feel like I'm okay, but I kind of want to address it. So I'm like, all right, great, let me let me talk to you, and then I find out that if this is available for you know, MST victims, combat veterans, and uh, uh, bereavement, uh, for bereavement. Uh, and I'm like, wow, that, that's not me. I never, I never deployed. Mm-hmm. What can you still do for that veteran in that moment and, and pass that? Okay, well, we never turn anyone away. That, that's ground zero, right? Yeah. That, that first interaction you have with the veteran, whether they walk up to the mobile vet center or they walk into the brick-and-mortar vet center, that first interaction is extremely important. It takes a lot to ask for help. It takes a lot to pick up the phone for the first time, walk through the door for the first time. It takes a lot. I mean, if we're talking about veterans who experience trauma, who are having symptoms of PTSD, isolation, anxiety, anger, nightmares, these kind of things. I, I mean, they finally take the time to pick up the phone or walk in the door and you say, sorry, we can't see you. That's the worst yeah. thing that could possibly happen. So the idea is that first connection, that first touch we have with a veteran is really, really important. So we don't turn anyone away. We can see any veteran for up to three sessions. Sometimes that even can be extended. Really, we don't like to put a number on it because the idea is that 
we're going to do everything we can to get you the care you need in some capacity. And even though you may not meet our eligibility to provide long-term clinical services, sure. we're going to figure out where you're going to go. So if you had walked up and said, hey, I need help, I said, let's figure this out. You know, do some old-fashioned social work, pick up the phone, figure out where you're going to go. Old-fashioned social work. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and figure this out because, look. Back of my the, day, the, we got on the horn <laughs> to find you some help. <laughs> Knocking on doors. Yeah. So the VA is big. It can do a lot. But vet centers don't just rely only on the VA. We're looking at everyone else in the community. So I want to I, I want to know and connect with the Workforce Commission all of the different uh, veterans service offices that are out there, veterans programs, advocacy service for veterans. There's a lot of them. At, at that event, there was tons of veteran service organizations out there. And I spent a lot of time going up and talking to those people because if you come up and you say, hey, I, I, you know, I, I need some care, I need some help. And I say, yeah, I'm going to help you. And then you find out that you don't meet eligibility. So what does that mean, that you're just going to walk away and I'm not going to do anything? No, I mean, we're going to figure this out. And, and so what I'll do the vast majority of the time, if anything, if anything, I schedule you an appointment to come into the vet center so we can sit down and talk. Okay. You know, spend an hour figuring this out. Okay. Uh, if you're not going to come here long term, where are you going to go long term? I want to know. I'm going to put it down in writing that this is who we called. This is where you're connected to. And then usually what I'll do is schedule like a, a follow-up visit. N you know, 99% of the time, the person doesn't even have to come back for the follow-up visit because we did such a good job of making sure that we did a warm handoff with whatever organization or, you know, VA that they're going to go to. Okay. So I want to encourage people. And, and I tell this to not just folks who, you know, maybe you know that you're ineligible, but it, but even if you're unsure, because like I said, there's a lot of veterans who are like, well, I was on ship in border waters. I don't know if I'm eligible. Just come in. <laughs> let us figure that out. Yeah. Okay. Because we're not going to turn you away either way. And someone does turn you away at a vet center. It, it, let me tell you, if, if 300 vet centers nationwide, if someone turns you away, call me, Joel Treveri at the Arlington Vet Center, and I will fix it for you. Okay, because it should never happen. I will list your contact number after the interview. 817-274-0981. Call me, okay, and let me know. Because, look, that should never happen. And obviously, you know, the people who work at the VA are human beings, too. Uh, I, I, I have a lot of compassion for everyone, not just veterans. And so if I hear that a veteran had a bad experience at a vet center, we, we got to fix it somehow. Okay. And I'll pick up the phone and call anyone in the nation to grease the wheels and figure this out because, uh, veterans should not be turned away. And, uh, especially when, when we are VA, we're one VA, right? Yeah. I mean, although vet centers operate outside of the VA hospital clinic system, we're still part of the VA, you know, we're all one team. And so we should be able to work together to figure out a solution for whatever the problem is that's presented by that veteran at that time. You know, it's, it's so, it's so important to, um, to emphasize or to, you know, if you had experience with, with, with that person, like if, if you went to a vet center and one or two people, um, didn't treat you the way you wanted to be treated, or you didn't get the response you were hoping for, whatever, maybe they turned you away or they were rude or whatever. I think, I think 
we and 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 we I'm gonna I'm gonna call the the we here the veteran community and maybe even people outside of it um, have created this under this assumption that that is reflective of VA, hmm. and it's not true, right? Um, it, one thing that has always astounded me in how veterans um, comment on their experience at VA is that they, they, like when they have a bad experience with, with a nurse or a doctor or a counselor or, you know whoever it may be they look that as reflective of of the organization but anybody especially I mean I can only talk, speak on the Marine Corps because that's the the branch I was in but I've heard other branches say this they always say oh there's always one right mm-hmm. there's always that like oh there's you know you got to watch out for the 10 percent when we were in the military we acknowledge that no matter how much we love our beloved Corps no matter how much we love our Army our Navy our Air Force our Coast Guard that there's going to be few that that slip through the cracks and they're going to be bad service right. members. Yet when they when when veterans come to VA, they have one bad experience with one person, and they go back on Facebook and talk about how horrible the VA is nationwide. And what bothers me about this, and I'm kind of curious your thoughts on this, if you're willing to, to speak on it, I'm always bothered when people go to social media discouraging veterans to go to from going to VA because they had a poor experience. Because you could be influencing someone to decide to not get the help that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel bad that someone had a poor experience at, at VA. Uh, VA cares about those experiences. And it, it always worries me when I see someone repeatedly go to social media with how horrible VA is, that they are influencing someone who needs help to not go get help because they just believe, well, if, if this person I know had a poor experience, I'm just going to assume that I'm a poor experience as well. It's really frustrating. Obviously, that, that doesn't the the idea that okay, we're not all perfect. It doesn't absolve that one person from mistreating the veteran, right? Right. So, you know, I know that one of the experiences. Sometimes, what I'll do is you know I use VA care. Yeah. I'll go into the VA. Nobody knows that I'm an employee. I'm using VA, and I'm taking mental notes, and I'll fill out little comment cards. <laughs> I'll fill out little comment cards, and you know, usually a bad one, and always a good one. Uh, because I want to compliment the people who did well. If, you're right. I mean, for every uh, every time that someone goes on social media and posts something negative, there's probably thousands of times that there was something positive that just didn't get posted. Right. Uh, but look, I, I want to stress that it doesn't absolve the, the negative experience that the person had. No, of course not. And, and we need to do better yeah. like, as an institution of training. You know, we, and we have. I mean, just in the 10 years, 12, 13 years I've worked at the VA, I don't know how long. Uh, in that time, things have changed a lot. We know there, there's been a lot of push to new values, value-keeping system on how we interact with veterans. Every year there's some new idea, new push, and, and, and we're educating our staff and saying, look, we, we need to do a better job of this. But there's, like you said, there's always going to be someone who falls through the crack. There's always going to be a point of failure. So at the point of failure, what do we do then? And so if someone posts on social media, all I can say is it's absolutely their right Sure. I, I actually, I, I kind of want to hear that stuff. I want to hear the negative stuff. Tell me the negative. Tell me the weak points as much as possible. I want to know the failures. I want to know where we're messing up. I want to know uh, because that tells us how we can do better. So without the people posting negative to social media, how do we know? I would say don't just post negative to social media. Write a comment card, a letter to the director. Let us know directly what the problem is so that we can fix it. If if people don't tell us what the problems are, how do we know what to fix, yeah. right? But I hear what you're saying. I get it. It's, 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 it might discourage someone else. 
And so I, you know, I also want to tell the person who says something negative, give us another shot. Okay. Uh, come on back, you know, uh, uh, give us a try. I, I, I hope that we can do it better next time. Um, it's not fair and it's not right that someone has a bad experience or mistreated somehow, but not just for other people, yet sure, they may post something that discourages someone else. But what really also pains me is that they themselves have now restricted themselves from a certain benefit. I'll never forget one of the first uh, veterans, uh, this guy was a work study veteran at a vet center, Vietnam veteran going back to school work study and he told me a story of how it took him five years to get a knee surgery at the VA okay now let me tell you the reason it took him five years and he says is is because um, is because he waited so long yeah. after Vietnam to go to the VA so he waited 30 plus years before he finally went to the VA and tried to get service connected and try to actually start this process. And it took so long to, for him to prove that yeah. he had hurt his knee in Vietnam. That that's why it took so long for him to get the care he needed. And so when veterans today stop going to VA, all they're doing is, is in, in a lot of ways, uh, really unfortunately, is, is they're just delaying their own personal care. They should get care. It is there. It is there for you. It is there for them. You should get the best care. And when you abandon VA and you say, I had this one bag expense, so I'll never go again, you set yourself up for 30, 40 years from now, potentially regretting and thinking, gosh, if I only had just pushed harder back then, I know it was crappy, but but I needed to try. Um, I, I'd be in a better situation now. And that's what that old Vietnam veteran told me, that old crusty Vietnam veteran. He said, Joel... Go to the VA, use the VA care, never give up, no matter how many barriers you get, you know, potentially get in front of you. And what I have found is that, that yeah, uh, look, I've done, I've been there. I have gone to a VA and had some negative experiences. And I just say, you know what? That's just one. I mean, you know, you just move, adapt and overcome, and you just keep going. And you, you end up finding yourself in a, in a pretty good place. Yeah. Because there's a lot of uh, veterans out there who I hear so many positive stories I, I just I wish that those stories could be told more. Yeah. You know? And obviously not everyone's gonna go on social media and say that, but I mean if people knew the amazing things that VA employees are doing nationwide for veterans, it's just absolutely incredible. The the from from boots on the ground at the very bottom, interacting with veterans, all the way through to research and education. I mean the VA is just doing so much it's just awesome, right? Yeah. And we need to hear more of those stories. I absolutely agree. And I and you're right on all of those accounts. And I and, and I don't want to uh, make it seem like I uh, that any veteran is at fault for complaining about oh, uh, right, their experience, no. right? That's uh, um, look. I I was I was with everybody else in when I was in school, and that GI Bill payment didn't come through, and you're on hold with the VA for two Ooh, hours. Yeah. You know, and you're looking down at your phone and you see like an hour and 40 minutes on hold. And it's like, our your call matters to us, you know, and you're like, are you mm-hmm. sure? Are you sure it matters, right? Um, so I, I want to, I, uh, I've definitely, um, and I went to social media when I was mad about it, right? But um, as someone who 
you know, I've I've done a lot in veteran suicide. Uh, I've I've dealt with my own suicidal behavior, and I know how easily those types of posts can influence someone uh, inadvertently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always, um, I've always just wondered. You know, one of the struggles that VA has is getting people into VA. Right, it's like um, what the the last report showed that seventy four percent of veteran suicides weren't currently weren't actively receiving care at VA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always wonder, like, how many of those just heard a bad experience from someone else and decided, well, then I'm not going to go. Yeah, you know. And so that's um, so the the point that I was making earlier, I guess, is stemmed from that concern of, um, you know, how many you know, like we need to help the veteran community. We're here for the veteran community. We're here for the veterans, but we need the veterans to also help us help their peers. If that makes sense. Right. Um, I'm wondering, I'm curious. um, Go ahead. I I think, you know, I think a lot of that can potentially stem too from the perspective that the, uh, or really the stigma that, the VA that exists of the VA in the military. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, uh, getting a brief on VA and, you know, the guy just pushed through the slides really quick. Yeah. It was like, well, you're not going to go there anyway, type of idea. Yeah. Now this isn't everywhere in the military, obviously, but, uh, I mean, I, almost everyone that I see that had just come out in the military, I ask them, what was your perspective of the VA? And all of them think, well, you know, you only, first of all, look, you're a Marine. It's like, if you get hurt, you just slap some mud on it and keep going, right? (laughs) You're not going to, you're not going to, and if you go to the corpsman, it's like, here's some ibuprofen, you keep going, right? The idea is you push through and that's honorable in the military. But what I like to remind people is that if you did get hurt in the military, you would have gone to the DOD hospital and it's the VA's job to continue that care. Yeah. And people think sometimes, unfortunately, people think it's a sign of weakness yeah. to go to the VA, but it's the opposite, right? It takes a lot of courage, actually, to, 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 to walk in and say, okay, look, I need some help. And really, it, it's a, uh, I think it's important that people enroll, first of all, because uh, the, the enrollment benefit is a, a benefit of its own. You know, for example, there are there are certain people who can't even enroll in the VA if you make too much money or certain like, things like that. But if you just get out of the military, uh, you take your paperwork and you enroll right away, so that at least you're in the VA system. Right. Okay. And then from when you're in the system, then you can utilize its benefits as little or as much as you want. You know, I say to folks, just even if you don't use the VA all the time, go in once a year for a little checkup and just move on. Uh, you don't have to uh, participate in every aspect of the VA. Uh, but at least if you're enrolled, you're engaged, and you can at least use use that benefit. And I think that some of that comes from just this uh, a stigma that exists in the military, unfortunately. And, I, and maybe one way we can do that is if we engage the military a little bit better on how they can pass along this information uh, that – you know, the VA should be just this continuation of the care. It's not like you're saying there's something wrong with you, but uh, it's there for a purpose, and all you have to do is use it. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, I got out in September of 2011. Um, I Out of Quantico, Virginia. Uh, I 
couldn't even tell you what the VA representatives told us. Like, I don't even, hmm. you know, it was so brief and it, it wasn't, it was interesting is it was, it was, it was as if they assumed we were already on our way to being in like, it, I guess there was no context to what they were, what they were saying, right? It was a really quick, brief class. Um, and it was sort of like, well, if you need it, you'll know what to do. It almost seemed that way, mm. you know? And, um, and I, I guess like, like you said, like many Marines, like you, you just assume you won't need it. Right. Well, and all, all I needed to knew, do was know how to enroll in education benefits. Right. Yeah. It, I like, I felt like that's the only aspect I really needed to know. Um, and then five years later, my knee's giving me problems. And I remember how my knee was giving me problems in the Marine Corps. And I'm like, I don't remember how to do any of that. You know? Well, the VA is big, right? And yeah. I think that what happens is, is those VA briefs, for example, uh, you, you pack in every single VA program into one slide and it gets lost in translation. So yeah. what, what has happened is the VA really is doing better at those transition assistance uh, programs as people who are getting out of the military. So even here at the Vet Center, we hire veterans outreach program specialists who we will send out to the base to give information, briefings to folks who are just getting out. Um, now, that's not everywhere, though, right? And usually those are people what, right when they're getting out. And, you know, you know, just like good as anyone else, that right when you're getting out, the last thing you want to do is sit in a brief. Yeah. Like, you're ready to so go. The last thing you wanted to do is you're see more out. PowerPoint slides. Right. You're on your yeah. phone, flipping through Twitter, whatever you're doing, you know, before, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, uh, you're not paying attention to the brief. And I, I mean, I can relate directly to that too. I mean, it, very rarely are you sitting there taking notes and paying attention and asking questions. You're ready to go. And so it's, it's the idea that we need to engage them even earlier than that. And so our outreach specialists, for example, will go to military family days or air shows or any other kind of events where active duty military are currently engaged right now um, uh, doing their day-to-day job to try to influence at that point, let people know, hey, look, this is what we exist. Matter of fact, this is why I failed to mention this earlier, but Vet Center, we can see active duty. Mm-hmm. Here at the Vet Center, it, we don't, you don't have to be out of the military to come to the Vet Center. That's interesting. You can be still on active duty, flash your ID card, and come to the vet center. Yeah, I it's don't... still completely private and confidential. Confidential, um, the unit doesn't need to ever know that you came. Uh, you can walk right into a vet center while still on active duty and get get counseling. Yeah, I, I don't. I think yeah, that's probably not something because we associate the word vet with right. it, with someone who has left the military, right? right? In uh, in. So, I, yeah, I think I don't think many people would, would assume that, that, that that's the case. We're, we're seeing active duty. We're seeing family members, right? So bring your family. You know, we, we can provide services to your family uh, as part of the service we provide to you. So if you're coming in and actively using the vet center and, and you need therapy, family therapy or, with, or uh, therapy with your children, you bring them in. We can see them too. Uh, vet, vet centers nationwide, every th- all 300, we, we have an individual who's the designated marriage and family therapist. Okay, so uh, and a lot of those are licensed in marriage and family therapy license. So uh, they have uh, expertise training on how to, to deal with family dynamics. Okay, so we're, we're seeing that. Did you seeing fam- uh, families? We're seeing people regardless of discharge. Okay, there's no discharge requirement. It can be any of the five. 
Honorable, That's interesting. So, ba- so bad paper, bad paper veterans. Bad paper. We can see bad paper veterans. Yeah. Again, going back to what we said before, we don't want to ever turn anyone away. Yeah. Right. Um. So we've been talking for the better part of an hour now. I think we oh, actually wow. we're actually Goodness coming gracious. up on the hour mark, and um, I am taking the the prime afternoon hours of your Friday afternoon. Uh, so I I do appreciate your time, man. This is um, it's you know it's always refreshing being able to. Uh, look, to put it bluntly, we work in the federal government, right? And there's so much bureaucracy and red tape and stuff around like what we can do, what we can't do and discussions and people want to know if things are, uh, if, if they're cleared to say something or whatever. It's so refreshing to be able to just sit down with someone who works in a VA, who who is serving veterans, who uh, can just openly discuss the work that's being done here, the challenges, the, the parts where VA is not doing things right, where we are doing things right. Um, and I think these are the conversations that are valuable to have as VA looks to not only improve its care to veterans, but improve the veterans' confidence that they're going to be able to provide that care. Mm-hmm. Does that make you know what yeah. I'm saying? So uh, I, I appreciate you sitting down for for the, for an hour and, and having an open discussion about this and um, and really letting the audience know uh, the reality here at VA that there's. There are, there are veterans here that are working here. There are, uh, there's people uh, of all uh, segments of uh, society that are that are here, that are available, and that are ready. And in, in um, I don't know if eager is the right word there for, but uh, you know, inspired to uh, mm-hmm. to help veterans. Well, this took to your time too, so thank you for your time and doing this and setting all this up and. <laughs> and making it work, you know. I mean, this is a really cool format, you know, so I'm glad I was able to uh, participate. So thanks. Yeah, yeah wonderful. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. Thank you, Joel, again for joining us. If you want more information on vet centers, visit their website, vetcenter.va.gov. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for Alexander Lyle, Services U.S. Navy, Division, Dental Corps, serving with the 5th Regiment, USMC. Conflict is World War I, Year of Honor, 1919. Citation reads, For extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty while serving with the 5th Regiment, U.S. Marine Corps, under heavy shell fire, 23 April 1918, on the French Front, Lieutenant Commander Lyle rushed to the assistance of Corporal Thomas Regan, who was seriously wounded, and administered such effective surgical aid while bombardment was still continuing as to save the life of Corporal Regan. We honor his service. That wraps up this episode of Born the Battle. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Please leave a review in your podcatcher of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you may catch this podcast, wherever you listen, 
please do leave a review. We appreciate it. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DEPT Vet Affairs and on Facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.